Halloween is tomorrow. What do you do during Halloween? You hand out good candy like Jesus would have done. That's what you do. So many Christians are so weird about Halloween. Oh, Halloween's evil. We got to run away. No, no. If you live in a neighborhood and you don't have kids, buy good candy. Not like those hard little Tootsie Rolls that kids are going to lose their teeth on. Buy some good. I give out full-size candy bars. You know why? Because Jesus loves me. That's why. (laughs) He loves those kids. So come by, and, and you give out good candy, and you get to know your neighbors. They knock on your door. It's not all weird, like they're trying to sell you something. You're like, hey, how's it going? These are kids. That one's cute. I don't know about that one, but hey, you know. You can talk to your neighbors. If you have kids, go trick-or-treating. If you go to another neighborhood, that's cool. But go back to your own as well and trick-or-treat in your own neighborhood so you get to know your neighbors. When do you get to ring their doorbell? They're happy to see you and give you candy. Halloween. So do it. Get to know your neighbors. Don't run away from it. Don't run to like these harvest festivals or whatever. Get to know your neighbors. It's a beautiful holiday to do that. And next Saturday night, you even get an extra hour of sleep. I know. I know. How much grace can you handle in a week? Really? (laughs) Right? Set your clocks back. Extra hour of sleep. I'm really excited about it. Some of you guys might even be on time next week. What? Let's see, can I make fun of you anymore? No, I can't. Uh, If you are newer to Element, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Inside, you get some notes that go deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions to ask some friends or your family to go deeper into what we are talking about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on Live and then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Mark chapter 9, verse 45, and it says, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your words in the scriptures and how sometimes that they can make us question and say, what in the world is going on with that? And I thank you that there are answers and I thank you that you lead us to those and they help us understand your grace and your goodness more and more and that we as people would bring glory to you in our lives and that you in turn bring your people great joy. Amen. Have a seat. So we are in this short series, I call it a short series for us because it's only 10 weeks, called What in the World? And if you have never been to a church before or read the Bible before and you heard that verse I just started with, you're probably thinking like, what in the world? Cut off my leg? What does it even mean? How do I even, do, if I wanted to, how do I do that? I, I actually had to Google that movie where the guy cuts off his arm. I actually Googled that movie where a guy cuts off his arm. You know what it's called? 127 hours. Google had to tell me. And I watched that and I'm thinking, there is no way, there is no way that that's going to happen. So what we're doing with some of these verses is we're looking at things in the Bible that make you go, huh, what in the world's up with that? Because sometimes some of these things I have read, I haven't really gotten full answers to those things. So I thought it would be fun if you and I looked through a lot of these things together because I want to help you better understand and study the scriptures and hopefully get some of your questions answered. This is part one of the series, and we have three by five cards on all the communion tables throughout the room. On your sermon notes, there's a little QR code right there. You can scan that if you have a QR reader in your smartphone, or you can go to the website that's right there, and you can ask us one of your own what-in-the-world questions.
questions. And next summer, we're going to come back and answer your questions. But make it a Bible question. Don't be like, can you talk about dinosaurs? Because the answer is yes, I can talk about dinosaurs, but I want to help you understand the Bible. So, so ask me a Bible question. And some of you guys are so weird. Because after each of these weeks so far, some of you, and, they, and you ask me a question. I'm like, write it down. Oh, yeah, write it down. And none of you write it down. Write down. Don't be a slacker. Write down the question, and I will answer it, or one of us will answer it next summer. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Today we're going to deal with the section of self-mutilation in the Scriptures. I like to call this dismemberment theology. Nobody gets my jokes. I think that's funny. Nobody, nobody in first service thought it was funny either, so whatever. Uh, so we're going to talk about what this really means as we look through it. Not going to be a lot of jokes today, because there's not a lot of jokes when you talk about chopping off body parts. So. <laughs> yeah, serious day today. So I'm going to read it, then we'll spend our time walking through it. Uh, we're going to go piece by piece. There's a lot to this, and I hope I don't lose you in the midst. But in the end, we'll bring it uh, back together. Get that? Oh, my goodness. I need Austin back there to go... Piece by piece. Mark chapter 9, that's all the humor you get. Mark chapter 9, verse 40, starting verse 42, says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So that's Jesus talking, and he starts off with the bang. Kind of in context, a little bit what he's saying here is, don't show favoritism. If other people are pushing others out, you are to welcome them into community. But when you don't do, don't mess them up with your own weirdness. Verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. Apparently you got two of each, you can live without one. Uh, Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For me, I would think if I had to gouge out my eye or cut off my hand or my foot, that'd be like hell anyway. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So there it is. What do you do with that? Well, I think a good place to start is when we kind of went through some of these verses back in the Sermon on the Mount a couple of years ago. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus kind of has this progression there uh, when he gets to talking about cutting off your hands and things like that. So Jesus walks through issues. He talks about blessing and that you have been blessed. And we are to live out that blessing in the world around us. Then he talks about salt and light and the emphasis in that in owning the faith that he has given us and owning our calling so that we live out as salt and light in the world. You see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and he calls us to righteousness so we live in the world and become a presence for God in a righteous kind of way. Not our own righteousness, but God's righteousness. And then Jesus gets to anger and lust where the tone changes a bit. Matthew 5, 28 and 29, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose Lose one of your members, then your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, than your whole body go to hell. 
The Sermon on the Mount there deals directly with anger and lust in regard to what I would call dismemberment theology. And so here in context, Jesus is talking about sin in a lustful manner. What do you do with your passion? What do you do with that? Literally in Greek, and I think the King James Version translates this better, it actually says, anyone who whosoever looketh on a woman to lust. That means you're choosing a way to do something. It's coming out of your heart, and you're choosing to do something because of what has started in here. But this This can also go the other way. Whoever looketh on a man to lust. That's why I try not to flex in front of you with my huge muscles. Shouldn't be that funny. Don't want to make a stumble. See, I'm I'm figuring it it out here. But but this... and so it's this in order to, you're using that thing in order to do this other thing. So in Mark, Jesus takes part of that same saying, but he makes it deeper, and he makes it broader, and he makes it bigger than anger and lust. And he takes it to your entire life. Where in Matthew, it's just that anger and lust. In Mark, it's deeper and more penetrating to our hearts. And I have said throughout this series, you've got to look at what Jesus is saying in context, of what's taking place before and after what he says. Jesus never says anything in a vacuum. So what happens? before this to get to a deeper level so we get this straight of what he's actually talking about. Well, right before Jesus says this things he does in verse 42, the disciples are complaining because they saw someone casting out demons using the name of Jesus. You ever seen the exorcist? The power of Christ compels you. No? Okay. Again, this is why no one's going to get my jokes today. Halloween, you don't make jokes like that. Whatever, okay? We, we are told the disciples found this guy to be highly offensive. And so they told him to stop. Mark nine thirty eight. John said to him, Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And now that's funny because the disciples are very proud of themselves for putting an end to this. But this goes totally against my motto. My motto is the less demons, the better. That's my motto. And Halloween's around the corner. I have seen Poltergeist and Amityville Horror and Mama and The Exorcist, and I can live without demons. If I go to a place and something goes, get out of the house, be like, I got to go. I'm not staying around. And it's funny because this guy is doing something that the disciples couldn't do. They had such a hard time doing, and they're mad at him for it. And this has always been one of the greatest faults with people who claim to be Christians. We think simply because we call ourselves Christians that we're better than somebody else or we know better than everybody else. The disciples, because they were students of Jesus as a rabbi who's becoming very popular at this time, didn't see themselves as having to take that blessing and serve other people. They saw other people having to come to them and get their approval for things. So they attacked this guy who was outside their clique, but actually doing the work that they were supposed to be doing. And that sounds too strangely familiar in churches today. Instead of praising the work that God is doing through this outsider, who very clearly trusted Jesus because he's using his name in a culture where you use Jesus' name, and it doesn't always go well for you. He's using his name, and instead of finding ways to support his ministry, they're trying to find ways to stop him. This is exactly what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus, and his disciples are now doing it to other people. I think this is why Jesus starts this section off with these words in Mark 9, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, that word little ones can mean different things. Let me first hit this and tell you that it is Jesus who changed the way that our world today even looks at children. In the ancient world, when a child was born, you could simply leave it out to die. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't scandalous. It wasn't a terrible thing. Because when people saw an infant, what they saw was nothing, nothing. They're disposable, kind of like how people see the unborn today. 
Roman writer Seneca writes this, We drown children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. Want to know the most common reason for killing a child? It was either poverty, and not poverty, oh, I can't afford it, but you're going to affect my lifestyle, or, or illegitimacy. If a wealthy family didn't want to have its property divided up between too many heirs, they would just let one die. They leave it outside, they call it exposure, and the kid would die. Any physical imperfections, death. If the baby's the wrong gender, death. Like if you're a girl, death. Historically in Delphi, there were 600 families, and only six of them had more than one daughter. That's how bad it was. Abortion, infanticide, selling into slavery. And again, it's not a scandal. It's not something you covered up. It's just the way the world worked. Jesus comes along. Matthew 19, 14 says, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In the ancient world, kids had no status, but Jesus loved kids. And so Christians started saying, well, we're going to love children too. Even if they're not ours, we're still going to love those kids. In the earliest instruction to the church, it was this document called the Didache out of the first century. And it said, you shall not commit infanticide, you shall not abort a child. So Christians began to prize children, all children. They began to have these things called godparents, because a lot of kids grew up without one or both parents being orphans. And people started to say, we're going to take care of them even if their parents die, even if they're not related to us. And then you had these communities like monastic communities. And they became places where if you had a kid and you're going to leave it out to die, they're like, just bring it to us and we will take care of that child. It's really the beginning of orphanages took place right there. And for us, little by little, year by year, Over time, civilization started to look and see children with something more, and it all started with Jesus, and nobody even realizes that. It all starts there. This is a guy. His name was Meningus of Dijon, like the mustard, but he didn't make the mustard. Okay, it's a third-century follower of Jesus. Rodney Stark writes about him, and he says that he nursed, supported, and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures. You know what his reward was? They killed him. They martyred him because you're not supposed to save children. The Roman writer Celsus, who said, he said that one of the weaknesses of Christianity is all that it can bring to itself to draw to themselves are stupid, ignorant, weak people, slaves, women, and children. How seriously does Jesus take this? Mark 9.42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's pretty darn serious right there. But you have to understand, in the context of this, this word here for little ones, it's this Greek word, mirkos, and it can mean small children, but it can also mean stature or length or a short amount of time. It could be someone who was a new believer, like the disciples were trying to get this guy who was a new believer to stop talking about Jesus. See, we've got to take really great care that our personal piety doesn't become arrogance, that we don't make people as hypocritical as we are and turn them off to the goodness of Jesus. When he talks about them, it is real infants, but it's also spiritual infants both. And that's important to understand for the rest of the stuff that he says in this passage. Jesus continues, it all goes together. They're not individual thoughts. Everything goes together. So he goes on and says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye cause you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These phrases in context are referring to how we can make those little ones stumble around us. 
In this reading, Jesus lists four different types of sin that are horrifying in their consequences. And in each case, Jesus suggests that death or almost mutilation is better than continuing in those sins. It's, it's a very graphic way to say these things. And his purpose is to show his followers, he's not talking to Pharisees, he's not talking to religious leaders, he's talking to his followers, that this life here and now is meant to be lived in the kingdom of God. It starts now. Now, I'll briefly talk about hell. I'm not here to talk about hell today, but I'll briefly hit it, the whole subject. You know, but Because you've got to realize there's a lot of writers in the scriptures that talk about hell, but no one as much as Jesus. If you took everybody in the scriptures and lumped them together, Jesus talks more about hell than all those people put together. And hell is essentially the final state for a soul for people who have rejected the rightful healing hands of Jesus. Being in hell doesn't start sometimes after you die. It can start here and now today. People can live in hell right here and now. Timothy Keller says it means that our lives become totaled. It's like if you have have a car and you get in a really bad car accident and your insurance company comes up and says, yeah, we're going to write that off because it's totaled. It doesn't mean your car has ceased to exist. It means that your car can no longer carry out its original function. It can't function as a car. It's alienated from its original design and purpose, but it's still there. If you are working on something and maybe a brick fell and smashed all the bones in your hand, doctors can still put that back together, but your hand will never be the same again. Timothy Keller says this. He says, In hell the human soul is totaled. It doesn't mean it ceases to exist. It's completely alienated from its original design. The human soul cannot realize its purpose. It cannot love. It cannot serve anybody because it's in the absolute misery of total self-centeredness. It cannot give joy and it cannot receive joy. It is total. Jesus, in relating these things to hell, shows how our lives and our souls can get into that condition. Self-centeredness, self-righteousness, judgment, not extending a hand of grace, not walking to the places God calls us to, using our eyes to look at and judge those around us. Now, the word translated as hell is the word Gehenna. That's a Greek word. It comes from a Hebrew word called Gehenom, which means the, the valley of Hinnom. Uh, This is a valley on the south side of Jerusalem, and for years, pagans would offer human sacrifices in this place. You see this in places like Jeremiah 31. Then this guy named King Josiah comes, and he puts an end to all of those sacrifices in 2 Kings 23, verse 10. But after that, because no one wanted to do anything in that valley, it became a dump, a trash heap. And so people would take human excrement and rubbish, including animal carcasses, and they would go out there and they would just let it burn. And so it said that the fires in Gehenna never went out. They said the worm never died because they always had things to feast on while it was out there. And this is why later it comes to be used symbolically of a place of divine punishment. Isaiah 66, 24 says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. Those are the words that Jesus quotes in Mark 9. This is said to be one of the first places where Gehenna is translated as hell and starts to be used of this idea of divine punishment. So when Jesus talks about cutting off your hands or your feet or gouging out your eyes, he's not saying you actually do it. It's a metaphorical way of saying that involvement in certain things in our lives can have devastating consequences, like things that we just think aren't that bad. Maybe judging someone, a little white lie, ah, that's not so bad. Cheating a little bit, oh, that's not so bad. Not serving one another. It's like that is like tinkering with an atom bomb. And at some point that thing is going to blow up and your life is going to be totaled. Uh, Jay Goebel, he was a he's a theologian in the 1800s, and I know you love theology by like dead guys. You all do, right? Well, he calls he calls this section the four paths to hell. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna break it out how he does. I'll give you his little things in here because I know you just really love that. 
Maybe not. Okay, so this, this is how he points out. Number one, he calls it the path of manipulation. That's the first part. And he says this is leading someone into sin by example or by intent. This is why when Jesus says whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. This is using someone who is vulnerable for your pleasure or your own gain. This could be if you have a child and you make them do all the work so you can be lazy around your house. Or maybe if you and your wife split up and you use your kid to try and hurt the other person. It could be tearing somebody down to make your own self feel better. It could be if you're a boss and you make an employee do something you know isn't right because you don't want to, but you make them do it. Or a whole corporation as a whole group of people have to do something that they know isn't right. I was going to make a joke and say it would be like you inviting someone to go to a country music concert with you. But I decided not to do that. <laughs> Goebel says this. He says, it's, it is understanding that we can be just as guilty for a system of injustice from which I benefit as if I was personally stalking the vulnerable. What that means is the man who views pornography is just as guilty as the person taking the pictures. Because you're supporting it. The second thing he calls is the path of the hands. So you have like these sins of hands and feet and eyes can be as much as what you do with what God gave you as what you don't do with with God gave you in your abilities. Like sins in our hands, it's not just violence. It's not just hurting one another. It's not theft. It can be idleness or seeing a place where something needs to be done and we don't go out and step into that place and use our hands to make something better to bring God's justice in the midst of injustice. God calls us to do something. And I would say more people probably sin by failing to do what we know we should do rather than many times doing something wrong. Third one, calls it the path of the feet. Path of the feet. And this is not just where your feet lead you to. Like, it's not just if you end up at the spearmint rhino once a week because my feet led me there. It's, it's where your feet refuse to also go to. If you claim Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and your God, then when you see suffering around you, your feet should take you to make a difference there. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In Hebrew, that's the same way of saying that God has shown you how to live. Live that way. Justice, kindness, love, humbly accompanying God where he calls us to go. It, it calls us to be a people who embrace those who are on the outsides and the outcast. We make them feel not forgotten. We invite them in to understand what God called his church to be. A people who welcome others in and show them the goodness of who he is. Do you understand that Jesus rarely preached at sinners? He typically went and he hung out with them and invited them in and partied with them. Goebel says this, It is our feet that take us down the path to sin and those same feet that won't take us to the front line of justice. However, if we would spend more time walking towards the latter, we would have a lot less difficulty walking away from the former. Good words. Good words. Fourthly, he calls it the path of the eyes. The path of the eyes. And this isn't just what your eyes linger on and look at. It's not just videos or websites or magazines. But do your eyes linger on somebody else for the purpose of judging them? Do you look what other people have and covet that because your eyes are staring at it? But the opposite is also true. Because there are places where we refuse to see the things that God calls us to see. In Luke 16, 19 to 31, Jesus tells a story about a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. And the rich guy doesn't go out and kick Lazarus. He doesn't hit him. He doesn't verbally abuse him. He doesn't send his thugs after him or anything like that. What he does is he ignores him. He refuses to see the need that was directly in front of him. He refuses to see the suffering that is right on his doorstep, which meant the rich man was living this totaled life. 
He's living this life of hell without God now and into eternity. Which I think is a good question for us then is what things do we refuse to see? What things do we fail to see that are right in front of us that God is calling us to? See, because sin can be acts of commission where you do something, but also omission, where we see what needs to be done and we refuse to do it. We turn away from our responsibility. And these are the paths based on the verses here that Jesus says to avoid at any cost. So what do you do? What do I do? Do we, do we go out and cut off our hands? Do we cut off our legs? Do we pluck out our eyes? Do you, that sounds really painful, so we save ourselves all the pain of that and just end it right here and now? Of course not. Of course not. Jesus is calling us to be aware of these things that can cause us and others to stumble around us. The things that pull us away from who God calls us to be. When following God is supposed to be paramount in our lives, higher and deeper than anything our hands or feet or our eyes would pull us into. This is why Jesus says in verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And there are literally dozens of people who will say, oh, this is what this means. But if you take it in context, which you should always do in the Bible, read it in context, you have a progression. It is hands, feet, eyes, and then all of you. Salt is representative of all that you are, all of us given to God. Fire is used for refining and sacrifice. In the temple system, what you will see in the temple system is that every sacrifice that is there is always given with fire and with salt. These two things come together. Romans 12.1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We as a people are to understand that our entire lives are meant to be worship of who God is. This doesn't mean just songs that we sing. It means everything that we do in our lives is worship, and we're meant to be salt in all of those things. I think it can also be a warning that, yes, persecution and trials you know, will accompany true disciples. But we live for Jesus in the midst of all of those things, so we are salt and light in the world. Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. Rabbis taught that the world could not survive without salt. I understand that because I love salt. I love going to the Chinese restaurant when they say, oh, we use MSG. I'm like, you are awesome because I love the MSG. When they, at sunflower seeds, I love sunflower seeds. I don't like them, but I like licking the salt. Salt is amazing. Salt is, but salt's also used as a preservative to keep food from spoiling. But salt can lose its saltiness. So Jesus warns them, don't lose the characteristic that brings life to the world and prevents decay. What is that characteristic? It is Jesus himself. He says, don't lose sight of me. In the scriptures, we are constantly reminded that God is a jealous God. Not like our jealousy. God is jealous for us to be a people who live and walk in his ways. God wants all of us. He wants our hands. He wants our feet. He wants our eyes. Most of us, God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. And you have to understand that God loves us so much that he did not leave us in a state where our hands and our feet and our eyes and our hearts were chained to all these things. He comes in the person of Jesus to die for our sin, to bring us back to himself, to break those chains so that we can live in the fullness of life with him again. God does these things because he loves his people. Jesus suffers and dies and rises for us. And through all this, God saw that because he lives, his people too can and should live. It's because of God's sacrificing grace that we are not cast away into this unquenchable fire because of the actions of our hands and our feet and our eyes. So here's my question for you this morning. Is there anything in your life that pins you down? Is there anything that pins you down that keeps you from living for him as salt and light in the world? 
then you know what has to happen? Then you do some amputation. Is there something in your life, oh, I just couldn't live without that, but every time you go there, it just pulls you deeper and deeper into it and further away from who God calls you to be. That is living in hell. And God says, amputate that thing off. Jesus' intention in this verse is that we would take these things literally, but literally how he meant them. Your eyes, your hands, your feet cannot sin in and of themselves. I'm like, oh, what is my hand? Do? Oh, my goodness, there goes that hand again. I better chop it off. I mean, what, where am I, what is my feet doing? I don't want to go there. It, that's not what happens. In the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, sin begins in our hearts and our minds. And then it becomes acted out in these ways. Like someone who is blind and doesn't have hands or feet, they can still commit sin. Jesus is using parts of the body to make an important point. If you follow Jesus and you love him, you shouldn't tolerate sin as an integral part of your life. We as individuals, if we have like this sinful habit, we should confess it to one another. We should tell others what it is so they can help us walk through it. We trust Jesus' strength and we cut it off. We cut it off. Even if it's as painful as losing a limb, we cut it off. Jesus is saying it's better to lose that than to miss the life that he has for you because his life for us is so much better than what we can determine for ourselves. What Jesus says here in this dismemberment theology, it is all about grace. It is all about grace. He wants to restore you to who he made you to be. And so we be a people who... who submit all of ourselves and all of our lives before him, and he will lay something before us and says, you need to amputate that out of your heart and life. We do. We do. Even when it's painful. Guys, this could be a relationship you're in. This could be a way that you're making money. This could be how you're tearing somebody else down. It could be a million different things. But there are certain things in our lives that just pull us further and further away from who Jesus calls us to be. And he said, if you really want to live in the life I have for you, those things need to be amputated. And then you need to trust me. You need to trust me. Because I will lead you into true and to full and real life. This is one of the reasons we do communion every single week at Element. Where you break that cracker like Jesus' body was broken for us. Because his body was broken so that he could free us. You dip that in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because we, as a people... We're so lost in sin, and Jesus' blood covers and takes away our sin. He restores us to relationship with God himself, and he also restores us to relationship with one another. We trust him for all of that. The band's going to come up. And as they do, I invite you guys to take communion. If you have some request in your life where you have something in your life that's just pulling you away from who Jesus calls you to be, and you want to do some amputation, they would love to pray with you about that today. If you have any prayer requests, they'd love to pray with you about that. Because all of us usually have something deep in us that consistently wants us to pull us away from who God is calling us to be. And once we identify it, then we also have to say, yeah, I've got it identified, but I don't know if I want to do anything about it. God calls us to be a people who unflinchingly love him first in all things who allow him to cut the things out of our hearts that pull us away from him so we can really be his people. I mean, one of the reasons that God always sets his people free in the scriptures for the purpose of worship, and I don't mean singing songs. I mean the purpose of being able to worship God in every part of our life without hindrance in everything that we do. And this is the same idea. Cut the thing off that holds you down so you can live in true and real freedom again, the life God intends for you. 
There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done in our lives and in our hearts. There's food in the back. Grab something to eat. Maybe meet some other people. Maybe go out to lunch or go to pumpkin killing and... And maybe ask some of those questions that are in there this, this week. You know, what, what things hold you down? What things do you think need to be amputated in your life but you really don't want to let go of? What, how can other people help you to begin to amputate those things? How can we live lives that are fully submitted to our great and good God who has rescued and redeemed and saved us? Because God intends for us to live in the freedom of what he calls us to live in. So let's be a people who live free lives, amputating everything metaphorically, that wants to hold us down. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who put your desires above our own, who trust you more than we trust ourselves, that we see the life that you've called us into, and we lay hold of what you have first laid hold of for us, that we would find in your strength, our strength. And that we would begin to be a people who in your strength become strong enough for some amputation of things in our hearts. So that we would begin to live the life you call us into. That you, above all, would get great glory because of what you continue to do in your people. And that though there are times when we'll be so sad for some of the things we feel like we we have to amputate, in the end there'll be much joy because you bring joy. Teach us to live in your joy. That we would empty ourselves of everything that holds us down and we would trust you for everything that we need. Have us, as your people, live lives full of grace because of what you have first given to us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.